Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Sports Mill Podcast. So good to be with you once again. My name, of course, is Clay Miller. I'm joined once again by Andrew Sullivan, and we have a very busy episode for you today. Of course, there's been a lot going on today with what we're going to be talking about, and that is the NBA trade deadline. I mean, Sully, we're talking before we came on. There's a lot of moves that have been going on, whether they're important or not. Maybe the most player movement we have ever seen in NBA trade trade deadline. And of course, we're going to start at the top. Uh, we'll give a little preview, though. We'll, we'll talk about the trades in the NBA, move on to some big picture stuff just overall, talking about who the favorites are now that some of these trades have shaken out. And then we might even get into some prospects in the college that might go uh, in the lottery. And so that's what our episode is going to be today. But solely, of course, the bomb dropped this afternoon. You talked about it on our last episode, the potential of James Harden being moved to the 76ers and Ben Simmons finally finding a new home. And it happened today. Uh, and, and the deals of that is is Harden and Paul Millsap are sent to the Sixers uh, for Simmons, Seth Curry, Andre Drummond, and two first-round picks to the Nets. Um, obviously, landscape-altering changes here for the league. And let's just take it bit by bit, because we were also saying how many layers there are to this trade. So let's talk about how this impacts the Nets first, right? Because Ben Simmons, obviously with his situation, has not played in a very long time. He won it out of Philadelphia. Now he goes to Brooklyn, where there's a lot of drama there, but yet Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are still a part of that team. So what exactly are the Nets getting, and was it a good trade for them? Yeah, I think this is, and obviously I think we're going to unwrap this in many different ways, but specifically talking about the Nets on the court, I think this is really interesting because they might be the only team in the NBA where swapping a player of Harden's caliber for Simmons, Curry, and Drummond is probably a net even swap for them. Just because you've already got so much scoring with Durant, and I'm sure we're going to have to talk about whether Kyrie's going to play or not at some point um, throughout the playoffs. But you've already got those two dominant scorers. They they want to have the ball often. They want to be running the offense. So there is probably a little bit of diminishing returns with having Harden on the court. Now, I don't want to act like they weren't, I don't want to act like when they were on the court together, they weren't amazing because we saw at the end of last season, the Nets were putting it together. Their offensive rating was historically great. And once they got in the playoffs, they started to defend pretty well. And the reason they didn't win last year in the playoffs was because of injury. So I don't want to pretend like this didn't work because of what happened on the court. This didn't work because of everything off the court. Kyrie's vaccination status, there's starting to be some tension between he and Harden. Harden deciding this probably wasn't the best place for him. But because of the way the Nets are structured, I do think adding Simmons to this team allows Simmons to play make at a high level. And it, it basically fills all the things he's bad at, he doesn't have to do. All the things he's good at is what he should focus on. So I, I think this is a perfect situation if Simmons is ever going to start to evolve and improve as a player. Um, Curry, great three-point shooter, great mover, mover off the ball. So he should be able to play around Simmons very well. Um, in Philly, they were a great duo together. Um, and Drummond gives you another big that you can play if you're worried about Claxton or Aldridge in the playoffs. So um, I like this overall for the Nets. I think um, I, I wouldn't go as far to say that it's a clear improvement over Harden because of how dominant that offense was together. But um, especially with how it's been going recently with Harden having um, having an injury, I think it's it's definitely helpful for the Nets. Yeah, and like you know, we were just talking about, there's so many things that go into this trade. And I, and I really do think that the Nets needed to do this because, like you said, it's not even as much on the court 
stuff that has happened, but when you can't get your three superstars on the court together and they're now in a losing streak, all the things off the court with Kyrie, Durant is hurt. I really think that Harden had kind of given up. I mean, we, you know, we've seen in Houston, when Harden gives up, things don't go well. And I don't think they could have recovered from this. And not only that, but they were on a losing streak. And I really think that the Nets needed to make a move. And this will help them later on. I, I truly do think that. And that's what's insane to me about how this worked out is, would the Nets have taken a championship last year? Yes, for sure. And, you know, we've talked about before, if they're a Kevin Durant, you know, shoe size away from potentially beating the beating the Bucks and going on and winning uh, an NBA championship. But now I think it ends up maybe working out better because I think Harden would have hurt them down the road, um, especially with how he plays. And now you get Ben Simmons, who doesn't need the ball, and he can fit around Kyrie and Kevin Durant better than James Harden on offense as far as he doesn't need the ball as much. And so if he plays to his skill set, he doesn't have to worry about needing to take shots in the fourth quarter, which was a problem in Philadelphia. And so, yes, they're losing some offensive firepower as far as scoring, but I don't think they necessarily needed it. I mean, Kevin Durant and Kyrie are definitely uh, you know, qualified enough to handle that scoring, and they have enough other pieces to help as well. And I want to talk about the Ben Simmons part of this because we could break down the on-court fit as much as we want. But getting to him specifically... Does it not feel like now that he this is all worth it for him? I mean, obviously Brooklyn may not be as far as like destination wise, like oh, I want to go live in Brooklyn, and they're still in the same uh, you know division as Philly. But as far as an on the court situation, I don't think he could have asked for a better scenario here. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Like, it, it's very rare that with these kind of guys you see them put in great situations, like. I mean, we're going to talk about a trade later with Sabonis for the Pacers, a, a guy I would say is pretty similar in skill level to Ben Simmons in terms of like just their value to a team. And Sabonis goes to Sacramento, right, when it's not working out with Indiana. That's what happens a lot of the times. You don't you don't get sent to these great destinations, but it just so happens that Daryl Morey comes into Philly, hardens his guy. And the biggest element to me of all of this, and, and something, you know, we, we kind of focused on the on-the-court part at the beginning – the reason this deal happened is not because the Nets wanted it to happen. It's because James Harden's a free agent this summer and was going to go to Philly in the summer if he didn't go now. And so to me, I, it's very interesting to me how after all of this in the, in the horrible position Philly was in, Daryl Morey somehow still created leverage for himself in this situation. Like think about, I mean, people were saying Ben Simmons should be traded for Harrison Barnes and De'Aaron Fox. And now, and they got James Harden and they had to give up a little more to get him, but those, I mean, that first round pick and Seth Curry is definitely worth the difference, right? And so it it's very interesting to me how the, the leverage completely shifted once there was a lot of talk about Harden being being ready to get out of Brooklyn because then all of a sudden it's it's not Philly needing to get value for Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons has like three or four years left on his contract. James Harden's a free agent this summer. If you don't do something about him now, Philly can create cap space in the summer by getting Tobias Harris into a team like Oklahoma City, and they'll just straight up sign James Harden, and then the Nets are left with nothing. So that's the most interesting part of this whole saga for me is how, in the end, Philly was somehow still able to find leverage to, to get a guy they wanted. You're exactly right, and and it's hard to see in the moment, but I honestly think and that this – is not a bad thing for Brooklyn that he left. And I say that in the sense of you said they didn't necessarily want to trade him. And I think that's true. But I honestly don't know if they 
shouldn't have been trying. And what I mean by that is this. Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, it was their plan to come to Brooklyn. James Harden wasn't a part of that equation. Now, he forced his way out of Houston, and he was there, and it was a benefit that, hey, we can go get James Harden, and we can have you know this wealth of talent. But it's one of those things, as a Celtics fan, I saw this a couple years ago. Sometimes the more talent you put on the court, the worse it is. And, and Kyrie was a part of that in, in Boston. It, too many mouths to feed. A team that had all the talent in the world couldn't perform in the playoffs. Not saying that would have happened with Brooklyn, but I am saying I think this might be a situation where the Nets look back on it and they have a better all-around team because Simmons provides things that Harden can't. And overall, he's not equal scoring-wise, but is still a good a star. And then they get Seth Curry and Andre Drummond, who are role players who you need people like that in the playoffs. And so they get three for one, essentially, because Paul Millsap... It was not necessarily helping them either. And so what's interesting to me about the trade is even though they weren't seeking it out, I mean, to me, Philly gave up a lot here. Like, they they helped the Nets out a lot by giving them Curry and Drummond as well. And that's what's interesting is that Brooklyn may have ended up helping themselves later on at winning a title more than they ever would have with Harden on the team. Yeah, and I think what makes all of this really hard to project is you have to now Kyrie is actually important like before you know we talked a little bit about how their skills can be redundant and I think that's that's definitely fair although you know we talked about how good they were last season um now you you don't have room for Kyrie to be a non-factor because like you said you know Durant and Kyrie are the ones that have to handle the scoring so that that's the thing to me is you're, you're putting more faith into him and you're also putting faith into Kyrie and Durant's longevity because to me like I don't really think there's any argument that Simmons is a better player than Harden right now. But in three or four years, Simmons might be a better player than Harden. So to me, this this greatly depends on, can you depend on Kyrie and how do Durant and Kyrie age? Because if in three or four years, they're still good enough to compete for championships, then you're going to be looking back and saying, well, yeah, Sim- Simmons might be more valuable now than than Harden was. But the tough thing is, you know, when, when they traded for Harden, it was a win-now move. And at that point, injuries hurt them. Now all this other off-court stuff is is ruining things, and it's crazy to me how nothing really on the court were, was the reason that um, that all of this happened. But but yeah, and I, one thing I think is also important to remember is um, in terms of value, like that Philly gave up. It I think Simmons has to be looked at differently when Philly is giving him up because he is worth like nothing to Philly. He ne- he was never going to play for Philadelphia again. So. You know, when, when you look at it and say, like, oh, well, you give up Simmons, Curry, and Drummond for Harden, it's like, yeah, but Simmons is worth a lot more to the Nets than he is to the Sixers because Ben Simmons to the Sixers is a guy that's sitting over there and you're paying, you're trying to get out of paying $30 million every year for him to sit on the sideline. Whereas Simmons to another team is a high impact defender and playmaker. So um, I, I do think that, you know, you have to look at Curry and you probably don't want to give him up. But to me, the fact that you didn't have to give up, Bible or especially Tyrese Maxey with how he's broken out this year. Um, I, I think this is a pretty fair deal. I, I wouldn't say either side fleece the other, but you got out of giving up your young players. You did have to give up one contributor, but you got the better player and you're getting rid of a guy that was of no value to your team. Yeah. I mean, that's what's so interesting about the trade is that from either side, you think you've, you've kind of won and it's really just which side of the, the coin are you standing on? And, you know, we'll move to the Sixer side of it now um, because Obviously, for them, Ben Simmons was a liability. I mean, me and you both taking business classes. If you have an asset, 
that you're paying 30 something million dollars to and he is not playing then that's that's not good i mean you're losing money there or they weren't paying him but you know that that's definitely not uh, what you want and so for them to move on and get a talent like James Harden they have to see that as a success for sure and what's so interesting to me I do want to talk about James Harden because we talked about the Ben Simmons saga a little bit um, it's crazy to me that he has been able to force him has acted as poorly as he has I mean he's he's acted like a child for a lack of a better terms in two different situations it pretty much gotten exactly what he wanted and what was funny to me is the report that came out yesterday. I thought this was hilarious, and I don't know why. That he, or it was actually this morning, he didn't want to request a trade because he was scared of the backlash. But yet everybody, but it was being reported that he wanted to be traded. And that doesn't make any sense to me because it's like, that's like when you like a girl in high school and you tell everybody else, hey, I like this girl, but I don't want to tell the girl because I'm embarrassed what she's going to think. Well, then everybody already knows and it's gonna, she's going to find out. So to me, that was so funny. It's like, go ahead and ask James Harden. Like the world already is going to make fun of you either way. Yeah, um, I, I but think yet he's he still is a guy for a long time that has had a real problem with the way he's perceived. Like even, go, like, even going all the way back to Oklahoma City, he, he knew and he was right about this. He knew he was better than the role he was being given in Oklahoma City. And so part of him leaving at that point, and he didn't force his way out Oklahoma City their owner was cheap and didn't want to pay the luxury tax. So they traded James Harden, but they, he gets out of there, gets into a better situation and then proves that he's a superstar. And at that point, you know, the all, that was the prime of the James Harden doesn't play defense jokes. And those bothered him a ton. And he actually did improve as a defender. I think as a result of all those jokes, I think those actually bothered him and got him to play more defense. And then, you know, people make fun of him at the end of the Houston stint and deservedly so. There was also that stretch where he and Giannis had a little bit of a beef and there was a lot of back and forth between them. And through all of that, I think Harden's proved that he cares about the way he's perceived. And so, like you're saying, it doesn't really make sense because it's going to come out either way, whether you want to leave or whether you don't. But he does seem like a guy that can be emotional and that cares about the way people think about him. And I, I almost think that's backfired on him a little bit in these situations. But to, to talk a little bit about his impact on the Sixers and will like is this actually going to work I and this is really hard because you know it could it could go downhill like anything else but I don't really see how it's possible that he isn't on his best behavior in Philly he's reunited with his old general manager who has made it clear that he he more he really likes James Harden and I don't know I mean at some point you start running out of options like and Harden to me is not an irrational person you know like a guy like, you know, Kyrie sometimes makes very weird decisions. Harden to me does seem calculated. Like when he does things, he, he has an intent behind them. And to me, I, I think there will be enough of a fear of the way he's perceived in the public as a guy that's like constantly causing issues that he will co cooperate and go to work. I'm not saying there'll be no drama. There's always drama between superstars. But I think he will be able to at least have a good relationship with Joel Embiid. And I, I think this is somewhere we're going to see him for the next I don't know, three or four years at least. I think he'll sign an extension um, with Philly probably, and, and that'll be it. But I think a talking a little bit about the on-court impact as well, um, one thing I've seen talked about is like the last time Harden was with a true big, it didn't work out. And that was when he was with Dwight Howard in Houston. But that is so unfair to Embiid to compare the offensive abilities of Dwight Howard to Joel Embiid. And I think 
yes, we have not had to see we have not had to see James Harden play with a big like that, play with a big like Embiid, where it's a lot of pick and roll, a lot of post up touches. But I have no reason to think that James Harden, a guy who's known to be a, a very smart basketball player, like he foul baits, you know, he's a great passer. I I believe that he has a high enough basketball IQ to figure out how to play with Joel Embiid and that he is going to enjoy this pick and roll combination. And hopefully, and if they surround him with shooters, it'll be a great offense. No, you're exactly right. And to me, this is the most interesting on the court discussion is about how Harden and Embiid fit together because it wasn't that long ago. And this is what people forget. You know, it's what have you done for me lately? I can remember three or four years ago when the Rockets were dropping 140 on everybody's head and Harden was going, you know, 30 and 10 with Clint Capella as his big man, throwing lobs like crazy. And everybody thought Harden was the greatest in the league. Like, we've never seen a scorer like this before. I mean, I can remember all the talk shows. Stephen A. Smith was saying that. And so, you know, we forget sometimes just how, obviously he's older now, but we forget just how good he was and can be when he's the main guy. The interesting thing for me, though, and I read an article about this, is that Embiid is not that type of big man. He doesn't. He wants to. He wants the offense to run through him. He's not going to be the guy to sprint into screens, sprint out, run, run to the rim. He wants to get the ball and post up and take his time. So that's what is going to be interesting to see is kind of what pace they want to play at. If you know, if do both of them want to have to isolate? Because if so, there's just going to be a lot of standing around between the two. I think it can work, but I think. That's what's so interesting is that people are saying the Nets, you know, maybe won the deal. And I do think they got a lot of good assets for what they needed. But compared to the Sixers, Simmons wasn't playing. And so the fact that you're adding a a healthy, assuming he is, James Harden, like that's such an upgrade to compared to what they were getting. And so if you have those two superstars in the playoffs playing at a high level, I mean, I don't want to see Joel Embiid and James Harden. I mean, I don't know what team would. And so that's what's, um, you know, the discussion is, does this put them at a point to where with the other pieces that they still have, a, a Danny Green, Tobias Harris, is it enough to maybe give them a chance? And we'll talk a little bit about that later. But I do think that the fit between um, Simmons, or excuse me, Embiid and Harden is is the most interesting thing in this trade. Yeah, and I think you hit on one thing there that I think to me is the most important part of it, and it's both of these guys are are much more stagnant and ball dominant players. You know, Harden even Harden even when he has the ball, is not moving around a lot. He's being patient. He's he's using leverage and then using his body to get into the paint and and either finishing at the rim or um, stepping back or kicking out to an open shooter. And Embiid's the same way. He's using his body and his frame to get down into the post, back a guy down, and then force the defense to either double team or give him a one-on-one chance around the rim in which he's extremely efficient. And so I think you're going to have to – Harden is going to have to start to move off the ball more, which in the past he's sometimes been unwilling to do. Um, and, you know, in other places he's been in Houston, it was the best option for him to have the ball every single play. You know, it, it was – there was no other guy on that team, especially when, when he wasn't playing with Chris Paul, that – was going to run that offense. And now he's got to start to figure out, I think both of these guys are going to have to adapt some and it's going to take some time, but both of these guys to me are smart enough players and good enough playmakers that I think they can figure it out. No, you're right. And and that's, what's going to be interesting to see is in the end, both of these teams now have a new, a new lineup. They're going to have to roll out and both have the talent to win. So how are they going to look in the playoffs? And that's, what's going to be interesting 
I think we kind of hit on there, you know, I have, you know, who won the trade, but I don't think we can say that yet. And like you said, it's a pretty fair deal. And so I think for both teams, like we said, if looking at it from the Sixers perspective and the Nets perspective, it was what was best for them now. And the off the court stuff is so interesting because both teams have very specific situations that I've never seen before. I've never seen, you know, a Ben Simmons situation where he's just sitting out the whole year and a team has to get rid of him. How will he now look in Brooklyn? Is he just going to do the same thing? Harden now forced his way out of two different teams. It, like you said, we we think he'll probably be on his best behavior in Philadelphia, but is he? And that's what's going to be interesting to see is how the off-court stuff, does it change with new scenery? And I really do hope it does because I, I would like to see as many good teams as possible when we get to the playoffs. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, especially with Simmons, he's just beginning his ramp-up process now. Like He is not going to play immediately. And then Harden's still um, – I don't know. I mean, I guess you could think he's fully faking the injury. I, I tend to think he probably is hurt, but in a better situation would have tried to gut through it. And it's probably just like, I'm not, I'm not going to make this worse when I don't really want to be on this team. That's kind of where I would stand with his injury. But those, both those guys, if Harden's actually hurt, um, he's not going to be hundred percent immediately. It's going to take him time. Same thing with Simmons. He's going to have to ramp up, get used to playing with them. So yeah, this, this to me really doesn't seem like, okay, like in a month and a half, let's revisit this and see where these teams are at. No, uh, Yeah. All right. We've spent a lot of time talking about that, which is, I mean, I, like we said, there has not been a trade, I think, that impactful for two different teams in a long time. We've obviously had big names move around, but as far as swapping those big names, not quite as much, especially over the trade deadline. But we do have some other big trades to talk about that, that are, you know, maybe not as big, but important. Uh, one that hit uh, yesterday or last night was the decision that I guess this has to be the Kings coming to the Pacers to me, I think, maybe not. But they agreed to send Tyrese Halliburton and a couple other players to the Pacers for DeMontis Sabonis uh, and, and a couple other players as well. But Halliburton is the big player to the Pacers. Sabonis is the big player to the Kings. This doesn't make a lot of sense for the Kings. I'm not, I, to me, I don't think that Halliburton was the guy you want to move. Now, I think Sabonis is is a good pickup for them. Maybe you disagree. What do you think about them moving on from Halliburton? Yeah, to me, this speaks to a larger philosophical issue with the Kings and less to I hate the value that they got for Halliburton because I I am a big Sabonis fan. I think he's underrated. I think the ability that like he's kind of one of those guys He's not he's not even close to as good as Jokic, but he can do similar things in terms of being like a hub in the center of your offense and letting guys play around you. And he can he's a double double guy every night. And I think he's a, a good passer as well. Um, his biggest issue is he's not a great rim protector, but he's a little bit too slow to play on the perimeter. So defensively, you do have to kind of hide him some. But I, I think Sabonis is a really good player. The problem is the Kings are trying to they are doing everything they can to make the play in. And that, that's never the best thing for your team because they're, do, they're making these win-now moves. And, and I do think that Sabonis is probably going to help them win more than Halliburton would have this specific season. But now you're putting yourself in that position where you're getting the 15th pick in the draft and your team next year is not very good. And then next year you'll make some other win-now move with Davion Mitchell maybe. And then you'll, you'll just continue this cycle over and over where – you're not actually giving your team a better chance of winning a title by making this move. So to me, like I think Halliburton's a good play, great young player. 
Halbert, I think, is getting a little overrated because he has something for everyone. The, he's, his analytic, like his advanced stats are great. Um, his counting stats, especially when Fox got hurt, he went up to, I believe, like 21 and seven when Fox was hurt. So he's proven he can perform at a high level. And then he's just, he passes the eye test. He does a lot of different things well. And he's a great teammate. He's very well-spoken. So he's a guy I think is, is possibly getting a little overrated because he kind of checks a lot of the different boxes for people. So there's not really a certain sect of people that doesn't like him as much. Um, I think he's a good young player, but I still probably think he'd be like your third best player on a title team. So I, I don't think the Kings are insane for giving him up, but it just speaks to larger philosophical issues within the organization that you're giving up this young asset you have that could potentially grow into something better for a guy that is a good player. And I, I like Sabonis a lot, but is not pushing you over the top whatsoever. Right. And yeah, I mean, thinking about it logically, Halliburton is not necessarily a guy that I think you're going to say, well, he's going to win me a championship by himself. Like, I mean, he's not that type of player. But I just think, like you said, the, the philosophical uh, logic behind it, you know, he was your top draft pick, you know, a couple of years ago. I think this is his sophomore season in the NBA. And so it just doesn't make a lot of sense to move on from him this this quickly um, because I don't really know why you drafted him then. I mean, they got Davion Mitchell, and I don't necessarily think Davion Mitchell is a better player than he is. Maybe he fits the Kings roster a little better in the long run. I'm not sure. But, yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where it's a bad team doing something that's a little head-scratching. And if they're just trying to say they made the playoffs, nobody's going to remember that, you know, 10 years from now. Yeah. And Hang the banner. Yeah. Playoff yeah. burst 2022. Yeah, we made the play-in tournament and got spanked by, you know, the Clippers. I mean, that's what's going to happen. And so it's... It doesn't make any sense to me as far as that goes, but I do like Sabonis, and so he's not, you know, old. So that he obviously could be in Sacramento for a while. Fox and Sabonis seem to be a that seems honestly to be a very good pairing, and so I can understand why they want it from that point of view. But as far as you know, long long term, I don't really get it. Um, and it's one of those things where because of who the teams are, it's two players or several players who are switching but not really making a huge impact on the landscape of the league right now yeah i and to me i this goes back to the draft like when when they drafted davion mitchell we talked about why are they drafting this old guard when they have three guards that are probably better than him yeah and then now they they have to trade one of the guards and the only one that the teams want is the good so now like that you're you're the decisions they made in the past created a logjam that then they port like they this is this has been coming for a long time. First and second of all, they finally hit a draft pick. Like Tyrese Halliburton, everyone thought he was a steal when the Kings took him, and everyone was right. Like in the past, you know, Marvin Bagley, Nick Stauskas, like they've had all these bad draft picks, and they finally hit on one. And now to deal him out, I think is also just it's a really bad look for your fans because they finally thought like, oh, this is a guy we can rally around. Like his he's he's really good. He's improving. And he's not on a bad contract yet like De'Aaron Fox is. Like, this is a real guy we can build around. And, and so even if your team is not much worse, I just – I don't understand the point of making the move, I guess. Yeah, and that's what we're kind of scratching our heads about is, you know, when you're a bad team, it's gotten to the point where you do one of two things. You somehow find a way to make a landscape-changing move to where you become good quickly 
or you tank until you get good. And this just seems like swapping of evenly talents. Like, it, it, I, I don't see yeah, this This is out. why they've been mediocre for yeah. 15 years. This is the yeah. exact move that the Kings would make. Yeah, no. I mean, it's very it's very Sacramento Kings of them. So I guess we shouldn't expect anything different then because this is what they do. But not much more to talk about there, really. I mean, I think we'll see um, Sabonis do well numbers-wise in Sacramento, and they may make the play-in tournament, but, but not much more than that. All right, let's move on to another move that happened a couple days ago. Or, I mean, it's hard to keep up when everything's coming this fast. But I really like this move. And this is one of those, I just said, you know, sometimes you make moves that seem big, but in the long run don't really mean that much. This is one I think could add up to something big. And that was the Pelicans trading for C.J. McCollum. Obviously, C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard have been longtime backcourt mates in Portland. They finally decided to move on from him and ship him to New Orleans. And the reason this is interesting to me is because of what the Pelicans could become. Um, obviously, Zion's not on the court right now. Brandon Ingram has kind of been in and out, in the, out of the lineup, so we haven't gotten to see him much. But when he has been there, he's looked great. And so I guess what I am curious about is if you get McCollum and Zion and Brandon Ingram on the court at the same time, to me, they complement each other pretty well. So do you think that's a team that if they stay together could end up maybe if they find some veteran pieces, you know, have a chance to compete for a championship maybe down the road? I, I don't think this is a championship team, but I do think McCollum will be a good a good add for them. Um, they are going to be really lacking defensively at guard. It's almost like they should have kept Lonzo Ball instead of trading for Devontae Graham to actually have a guard that plays defense. But um you know, going back to the offseason, what can you do about that now? I think McCollum is a good ad for them. He's he's a good scorer. He can take some of the burden off Ingram right now, especially when Zion's still out, which I think is – they – to me, you know, we just talked about the Kings, right? They are not in a position where they're ready to contend. If you have Zion and he's healthy, you're ready to contend. He's too good for you to sit there and try to be bad because he's going to will you to at least the middle of the pack by himself. Last season, he was one of the most efficient players in the NBA – and now we're waiting on him to get healthy, and it's taking forever. So, like, I, I, I think that's very concerning. But you've got to build your team assuming that he comes back at some point because that's your, that's your number one asset. You've got to plan around him. So I do think for them it makes sense to start trying to, to get better. And while your younger players are on cheaper contracts like Zion, this is the kind of move you can afford to make because Zion's not on some $40 million contract yet. So even if McCollum is on a more expensive deal – that's not as costly to you because you do have room on your books to, to acquire something like that. So um, I, I think this makes sense for the Pelicans. I don't know that it's some, some great ad. I think the Blazers perspective to me is really interesting because they're finally after so long admitting that what they had was not good enough um, with Neil O'Shea finally stepping down as president of basketball operations. We, we see another opinion has finally entered the room and realized that what they had there was not good enough and it never was good enough. And Maybe some of these moves should have been made a long time ago, but they're finally having a fire sale. What I find interesting is that they're going to try to use these assets to rebuild around Dane. A lot of times when you see these teams do this, the star player is what leaves because that's what's going to get you the most assets back. And so this is going to be a tightrope for them because they are going to have to, every single move they make is going to have to be a good move because they don't have that many assets and they're going to have to fill a lot of spots around Dane. So to me, I, I think the idea is correct to try to, reshuffle the deck but it's gonna be really difficult for them to build a contender out of the assets they've got yeah you're right the Blazers perspective is is interesting because 
I mean, I'm I'm thinking they're going to try to keep Dame, obviously. But is he going to want to stay in Portland now? I mean, I think they're going to have to show him the same thing that you're talking about with Zion. They, that, you know, they want to compete pretty quickly because Damian Lillard is to the point in his career where if he doesn't win a championship soon, he's not going to get one. Um, and so they're and it seems have- like he's fine with that. Like he's, he said, like, I just want to stay in Portland. I want to, I, I want to have a legacy there. Like he, it just seems like he's one of those guys. And I think Beal is another one that we may talk about later that it, it seems like they may just care more about having a legacy in a city than going out and contending. And if that's what he wants, that's, that's fine, I guess. But I still think, you know, the Portland trailblazers would obviously be remiss not to try. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, your goal is to win a championship. So it'll be interesting to see what they try to do. Yeah. to, you know, move on. Because like you said, they've been holding on for, with this fantasy about Willard McCollum and, and finding some pieces around them for so long. And it seems like it's been a, re- a revolving door of, of nice role players. And we just haven't seen it work out. And I think on the Pelican side of things, it's just it's just a fun trade because, I mean, uh, Ingram, Zion, and McCollum offense just seems really like, I mean, I, that's a that's a hard offense to guard if, if they run, you know, correct... Uh, you know, they're not hogging the ball and it's one of those where the ball doesn't move. But I really do think that they have a chance to have a fun offense and if nothing else. And so, I, yeah, I just want Zion to get healthy and at least give us a taste of, of what that could be like because you do hope that at some point he gets a chance to win with the Pelicans. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's probably the biggest encouragement from this trade is, I mean, what did people talk about when Zion first came into the NBA? It's you need to surround him with good shooting because he's going to, he's going to bring so many defenders to the paint that if you can just have good shooters around him, that's, that's going to be enough for an offense. And they've got a, a pretty solid shooter in Devontae Graham, great shooter in TJ McCollum now. So that's, that's what you want, right? That's what you're trying to build. Um, and I think, I think that's a good path for the Pelicans to be on um, later on. But yeah, I just, I want to read off a few numbers here of Zion, like just to remind everybody how good he was last year. Like last, last year he in 61 games, like, that's a good portion of the season. He played a lot of the season last year. He averaged 27 points, seven rebounds, and four assists. Like, that is that is elite-level play. That is that is not just like a, oh, that's a good young player. Like, 27 a game from, from the efficiency he did it on, which was 60% field goal percentage, like, that is that is rare stuff. So, you've got to go for it if you're the, the Pelicans because Zion's ready to contend right now. Yeah, and we forget. I mean, it's kind of like Simmons. You. When a guy doesn't play, you kind of forget what the impact he can have. And, and you know, Zahn is a guy who can change a franchise when he's in there. All right, we got a couple more. Well, this is the last big one. We got to talk about a couple smaller ones, too, after this. But a surprising one today, I'm not surprised that this, this person was moved. But it, it wasn't really a trade that was talked about until it happened. And that was the Mavericks deciding to trade Kristaps Porzingis to the Wizards for Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertans. And it's no secret that Luca and Kristaps, you know, weren't working out great. Porzingis seemed to be a little disgruntled. They thought maybe bringing in Jason Kidd would help. Apparently it didn't very much. And so, I mean, Porzingis is kind of like Harden in a way where he's been in two franchises now where it's kind of turned sour quickly. And now he's on a new team. Um, what does this do for the Mavericks? I mean, do you think that Porzingis leaving is better? And not even as much who they got. And we could talk about that too. But Dinwiddie and Bertans coming in, is it better that Porzingis is not on the Mavericks now? Yeah, this this deal doesn't really do much for me, like either side, I'll be honest. Like I 
I think the Mavericks might be a little better just because at least they're going to play. At least Dinwiddie and Bertans might be on the court. And just it's been a real issue for the Mavericks, especially in playoff time, to to get him on the court and get Porzingis ready to go. And so I I think Dinwiddie can be helpful for them as a secondary creator because a lot of the playmaking load has been shifted to to Jalen Brunson when Luka's not running the offense. And Brunson's a great player, but um, for for just those two guys, that's a lot of responsibility to run the whole offense. So I think Dinwiddie has not had a good season. So if he can pick that back up, I do think he makes sense for the Mavericks. Um, Their defense, surprisingly, has been very good this year, which I don't think you think of when you think of the guys on the Mavericks, but they've been a very good defense this year. So I think you can afford to add Dinwiddie into there. And honestly, Bertans is kind of doing what Porzingis did last year, which is just stand on the three-point line and catch and shoot threes. Like, that's what they, Dallas told Porzingis to do last year anyway. So, I think the biggest thing this does for Dallas is split Porzingis' contract in half. Like, Dinwiddie is about half of Porzingis' contract. Bertans is about half. And Bertans is, is, a, is a little longer than Porzingis' contract, but Dinwiddie's is not as long. So, you're basically splitting this deal up so that later on, $20 million each is a little more tradable than Porzingis' $40 million contract is. So I don't know. I don't, I don't care about it that much. I don't think this makes the Mavericks a lot better of a team. I think the Wizards probably just didn't like how Dinwiddie was meshing with Beal. Um, so they, and anytime you can move off Berton's contract, you probably should. But I don't think this matters very much for either team. Yeah, this feels a lot like the – it's different but the same as the Halliburton trade because – the Wizards are another team who seem to make moves that seem big on the surface. You know, the Russell Westbrook trade. Um, and it doesn't really do anything in the long run. Like, I don't think Kristaps and Bradley Bill are going to really do anything for you. And I think they maybe know that. I mean, we just saw Doncic. I think Doncic's Porzingis didn't work for a couple of reasons. And I honestly think Bill Porzingis might a little more. But it still doesn't, you know, give me enough belief that they're going to you know, suddenly have a, have a window to compete for a championship. And so that's what's interesting here is that, you know, the the, the Wizards moved on from Dinwiddie and Bertans, great, but do you really want Porzingis? I mean, that's that's the question here is that, is this going to be something that Bill and Porzingis try to now, how long do they last? And that's what I'm a little confused about. Yeah, the, the Bill thing is really weird because it's kind of, it, like we mentioned, it's kind of like the Trailblazers where he it does seem like he, doesn't mind being in Washington and that's somewhere he could see himself long-term, but Beal is eligible for the Supermax. And I don't think he does not deserve that. Like he, he has not proven that he, in the last year of that contract, it's a five-year deal. He would be getting paid $60 million. And that's not as big of a deal as it sounds because the new TV deal will kick in at that point. So the salary cap is going to grow very quickly here in the near future, but still $60 million for a guy like that. I'm not sure that's worth it. He's probably somewhere between the, 25th and 30th best player in the NBA, maybe 20. Like that's that's not a guy that's going to win you games um, enough to really matter. And obviously, I don't. And like we've mentioned, I don't think Porzingis is going to win you games either. So I don't know. I think Washington may end up because Beal actually likes to be there. I think they may end up attaching themselves to a bad contract here. Um, but we'll see that in the off season. And one thing I just want to point out too is like it's things with Porzingis have changed so much from when he was acquired from the Knicks because. When he was acquired from the Knicks, people thought this was Luca's co-star. And by the time his tenure was over, he turned it turned into this is Luca's role player. And I just want Luca's stats in the playoffs the past two seasons are 34 points a game, 10 assists, nine rebounds, 40% from three, 
like that is historically great performances from a first time and second time playoff player. And they didn't get out of the first round either time. And they did play the Clippers both times. The Clippers were a good team. So it's not the easiest first round matchup for them, but you've got a player playing at an elite, elite level. And I think he was the best player in both of those series. You could argue him or Kawhi. And because of Porzingis, they put so many assets into him and then it didn't work out because of injuries. And then now just lack of fit with, with Doncic. That is why Dallas is in this situation now, because Luca has been everything and more that you expected. So I, there probably is some frustration there within the organization. And so moving on from Porzingis is probably just something that everybody wants to do. Really good point. And I think, you know, hearing you talk just then in our discussion throughout, it really makes you realize what makes teams good in the NBA. And it's when players understand their roles and not just understand their roles, but they understand the correct role for them. And when you have players who think they should be more than they are, a lot of times it doesn't work. And that's what you see the great teams do is they come together and everybody realizes their correct role, not the role they want, but where they are and how they fit together. And that's why I think you'll see teams that have players like Porzingis. Every time he gets traded, it's like, oh, they're getting a Christos Porzingis. But it's never enough to push the needle because he's not as good as we think. He's not that guy. And so that's what's really interesting about all these deals is that they seem big, they seem monumental, but they need to go to a place where they're in the correct role. And I think that's what the why the the Nets Harden or the Nets and Sixers deal is so intriguing because those two players seem to be going to places where they can play the perfect role, especially Ben Simmons, where he won't have to be the primary scorer. And so that's what's that's what's always so interesting about trades is what are these teams really seeing as far as what they can get from these players. All right, yeah. that's as far as the big the big trades go, that's that's all we've got. But I do want to talk about some smaller moves. And me and you have talked about off air as well, how there was a ton of movement between teams where it was just random players getting traded and they weren't even gonna be used. They're just being traded so they can be moved again or a roster flexibility. Uh, but there were a couple of other notable ones. One that happened a couple days ago when he's actually already playing for this team was Karis LeVert to the Cavs. And I feel bad for Karis LeVert because he was a casualty in Brooklyn where he, you know, it, it wasn't his fault. Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving decided to come to Brooklyn and then they were just like, well, I guess we don't need you anymore. After he, you know, you know, got the nets to relevancy he goes to Indiana and then, you know, has all the health scare there. And now they decided to trade him to the Cavs, which I'm actually really happy for him because the Cavs are good and he has a chance to impact that team. Um, so, you know, he's not necessarily a superstar, but he can give you 20 points a game in, in the right situation. So do you think this gives a, 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 the Cavs a legitimate chance to, to maybe upset some teams in the East? Yeah, I... I still probably see them in tier but I, I like this move in theory. Like I think what the Cavs needed is Karis LeVert. It, it's a good, it's a guy that can come in and create offense when Darius Garland isn't in the game and then can play off ball, catch and shoot. The problem is that Karis LeVert gives you two nights where he's really effective and then two nights where he's killing your efficiency and he's not passing the ball to anybody. So that, that is what I want to see is when he gets into a more functional environment, can he minimize those games? Because if he can, this is a great ad for Cleveland. 
but it's been there's been a pattern of that for long enough now where I do want to see if he can evolve because he, like you mentioned, he's talented. He was a great young player for Brooklyn when they first started pushing towards the playoffs when before anybody really expected, but he's got to prove that he can fit in because he's not the most important player. He's not the second or third most important player. He might be the fourth most important player on that team. So he's going to have to figure out if he can fit into that role and play off of Garland because that's what Cleveland's going to expect him to do. Yeah. And once again, it's all about knowing your role and I think that's why he, he was so successful in Brooklyn is because he, he knew he wasn't the guy. And then he started getting good. And he, maybe he thought, oh, wow, I should be the, the primary scorer. And he's still not quite to that level. And then in Indiana, you know, obviously, it's a lot harder to, to be yourself when you're coming off a major injury. And so I do think if, the, if Cleveland can get him to understand, we just need you to be a bench scorer. You know, be our Lou Williams, be our Jamal Crawford, whatever you want to, you know, name you want to put in there then he can really succeed and help the team out. But like you said, he, he doesn't need to look at himself as, as the most important player on the floor. But I do like to trade for the Cavs. Another deal that was done, uh, or several deals actually, this is actually more of a discussion about a team, was my team, and that was the Boston Celtics, who just decided that if you're not a superstar on our team or you haven't been here for a while, then we're, we're letting you hit the road. I mean, Schroeder's gone, Josh Richardson's gone, Enos Freedom's gone. You know, they, they let everybody go as far as role players. And they got, you know, Derek White uh, from the Spurs uh, and, and a couple a couple other players. They got Daniel Tyus back. Um, you know, Brad Stevens, I think, is the story here, more so than who they got, that, you know, there's been talk that he's a lot different than Danny Ainge as a GM. And I think we saw that. He was able to get a lot of deals done. So do you think this is big picture? Is 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 Brad Stevens as the Celtics GM going to pay dividends down the road with deals like this? I actually think this is a good sign because to me, it shows a plan and whether that plan is going to work out or not, we'll we'll see. I I like the ad of Derek White. I think, I mean, we can go back years now. The Celtics have been looking for a guy that can play make for Brown and Tatum, whether that be, you know, Kyrie, Terry Rozier, Kimball Walker, they've been trying so hard to find somebody that can fit that spot as a real point guard. And they've struggled to do that. White is not that, but he knows he's not that. And he does have a little bit of that ability to create for other guys. It's not the main part of his game, but I do think that's going to be a little bit of an add for Brown and Tatum and can make them better players. Um, He's a good defender. He'll fit in well. This is a guy that I just think is – he can be a good player on a good team. He's not not one of the best, but he's a great role player. And talking about the plan of Stevens, I do like that it seems like they are focused on trying to get some flexibility for the summer. Um, with free agency or whatever moves you want to make at that point. I think that's a good sign because to me, it shows that he's not content with the roster he has now, because I think it's, we've seen for a long enough period of time now that this team as currently constructed, even with Brown and Tatum as great young players was not going to be enough. And so who knows, I think it's really early to figure out what this plan is going to look like, but I, I like that there's signs of life from the Celtics organization. Yeah. That's what's hopeful to me is that, the Celtics have been trying for the last couple of years to to act like they're this big bad team and they really weren't, especially after the whole Kyrie fiasco. And so this seems to be them finally saying, Okay, we're gonna move on with with a plan in place and get a guy that makes sense. Like, you know, Dennis Schroeder was a nice name, but he didn't fit with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Like you said, Derek White doesn't need the ball in the sense of he needs it to score. And he's a he fits in well with Brown and Tatum. So I really like that that deal and I like what Brad is doing 
as far as being realistic with what the team needs going forward. And that's that's what's hopeful for me as as a Celtics fan. Um, all right, one more one more deal that we're gonna talk about. I mean, there there's so many, but a lot of them, like we said, don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But this one was probably the most complicated as far as teams involved and, and names of players, and that was the crazy uh Kings, Pistons, Bucks, and I think the Clippers were yeah, the Clippers were involved on it. But the big names here, and, and Sully can go into more detail if he wants, but Dante DiVincenzo is going to the Kings. You know, once again, Kings getting a superstar there. Marvin Bagley, who obviously is, you know, big name, hasn't really produced well as the second overall pick, is headed to Detroit. And Serge Ibaka is headed to the world champion Bucks, which is really interesting to me. So are there any notable things out of this trade that you think are, are worth looking forward to maybe come playoff time or in the future. Yeah. Bagley is a guy that I liked coming out in the draft. So I selfishly just want to see him play basketball somewhere outside of Sacramento because that relationship was completely burned down. And um, he, I, I'm not saying he's going to become a great player, but I, I just hope he at least gets an opportunity because it's clear that things are not working out in Sacramento. So that I was, I was just happy to see that he was leaving. Um, I think, Devin Shinzo for Bagley is probably fair value. That's another guy where he was going to probably get squeezed out of the rotation a little bit because Milwaukee's got Grayson Allen and Pat Connaughton, which, you know, I guess Devin Shinzo's mixed, but they got the white guys coming in. Like it's the, the crew of those role players and they all are a little bit redundant in their skill in their skills and what they provide. And Devin Shinzo's coming off an injury. So he hasn't played that well in the 15 games he's played this season. Um, so Milwaukee, you know, they're trying to win right now. They, they can't afford to waste time with that. So, um, it, it does make sense. I think Ibaka is a good ad for them. We're still waiting on Brooke Lopez to come back. So any big man help they can get is is good. And it, a guy that can shoot the ball a little bit um, should be helpful around Giannis. So I think this makes sense for all the teams, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's not a very big deal. I think Detroit's probably the one like with the biggest range of outcomes in this, like maybe you can salvage Bagley's value and then this turns into um, a really positive deal for you, but that seems unlikely at this point. Yeah, yeah, not really, not really huge in the grand scheme of things currently. I mean, I think you're right. Bagley has the athleticism in the game to where you would think in the NBA he he could really have an impact. And unfortunately, you know the the situation with Sacramento was just so terrible. I don't think he even had a chance. Not saying it will be better in Detroit, but at least there he can have a fresh start. We'll maybe see if he can get some more playing time and, and have a better impact. But I think Ibaka could definitely help the Bucks in the playoffs because, you know, they're going to try to win again. And he's very, he's really underrated to what he brings to a team because he's never been a guy who, who needs the ball. He, he just comes in and works works really hard and plays good defense and, and can give you some some scoring when you need it. And so I do think that was that was a good pickup for the Bucks. Okay, uh, you know, obviously a lot of trades going on. Once again, the big ones, uh, especially with, with the Harden deal to – Going to Philadelphia to pair with Embiid, they're obviously you know trying to win win in Embiid's prime. On the flip side, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, they want to win too, and so they they needed to make a deal to to try to you know salvage what they could in their championship window, and so they they decided to go get Ben Simmons and, and trade Harden away. Uh, and it'll be really interesting to see how that's going to play out, and we're going to talk about it here in a minute. But so I want to ask you know any any other trade deadline news we need to discuss or, or any you know, final thoughts on, on what we saw, you know, in the last couple of days. No, I don't think I have anything to add. So we can, we can go ahead and move into more of the big picture. Um, talking especially about the Eastern conference as a whole. So I can go ahead and kick it back to you. Who do, who do you think um, is going to come out of the East? 
Well, I think this is really interesting because we talked about the two teams at the deadline who made a lot of noise. And that was the the Nets and the Sixers. And everybody is I've seen posted pictures of the projected lineups now. And that's what we always do when a free agent signs or, or like this team's going to be scary. But in reality, I still think, and I, and I saw a lot of people say this, we don't know how those teams are going to look. And you have two teams sitting there in Milwaukee. And even I'm going to say the Miami Heat here that I think are better positioned team-wise, continuity-wise, to be the favorites come playoff time. Especially, people don't have kind of forgotten about this guy, but if the Heat get Victor Oladipo back, they have as scary of a, of a roster as anyone. And so I am actually looking to, until I see what the Nets and the Sixers have on the floor, I still think the, the Bulls, or excuse me, the Bucks and the Heat, are the teams to be in the East. And, and we can kind of talk a little bit about, we already, uh, you know, mentioned the, the Nets and Sixers, you know, fit, but they're going to have to go through some of these other teams as well. Yeah. To me, the first thing I want to say is like, I almost have to put like the, if the New York vaccination requirements are rescinded, I think the Nets are my favorite. I think with adding Ben Simmons, I think it would be a huge impact to that team. They've just been shuffled around all season. And in my opinion, I still think Kevin Durant's the best player in the NBA. So I, I like the additions they've had with Seth Curry. I think their roster is good enough that they can find guys to piece together. Um, so they, if, if they play, if Kyrie is able to play in all playoff games, that would be my number one. But that doesn't seem like it's likely at this point. Like, I don't think the New York mayor has been super vocal about any of, of whether this change is going to happen yet, but at this point, I don't think it's safe to assume that it will be rescinded. So, to me, I agree with you on parts. I think the Bucks are definitely – I think they have to be the favorite still. Um, they've proven that – they're. they've already proven they're a great team. I think they even improved greatly throughout the playoffs last year and started to figure out what their offense needs to look like. And, and Giannis started to become much, much less fearful of the free throw line. You know, even later in the finals, he started to make – make more of those consistently. And it seems like all of those guys now, they know what it's like to win a championship. They know what it took. And so I, I would take Milwaukee above them. Um, after that, and this is just me, like I'm always going to favor the team with the superstars over the team that, with a little more depth. So to me, after that, I do see, um, I see Philly and Brooklyn as pretty even if Kyrie is not playing in every single game. Um, I do, I, I think all of those teams have pretty similar peaks. Like at their best, I think they could all be, pretty similar, but especially, you know, we talked about how it's going to take some time for Harden and Embiid um, to work, to work out. I think both those teams you're looking at next year being the year where it's like, okay, let's see if they can put it together. Um, and, and I see Chicago and Miami as pretty similar. Um, they're, they're only one game different in record. They've got great deep lineups with guys at every position that can do different things. Um, they've been solid all around. And I think those are the kind of teams that to me at least have great regular seasons, um, they challenge teams throughout, but then when it comes down to the playoffs, a lot of times the star power is, is too much. And, you know, we saw when the Heat made the finals, there wasn't as much star power in the East. So I, I think that's the most important thing for me is looking at who are the best players and do are the role players just good enough to get, get you there. And so right now I would favor Milwaukee and then probably um, Philly and Brooklyn after that. Yeah, the East is definitely the the conference where – it's a lot more wide open, it seems like, because we haven't seen the full rosters intact yet with, with most of them. And, um, you know, like you're saying, it's just, it's 
the discussion at this point is, do you go with what you've already seen or do you go with what you project? Because I agree with you. I, I love, I think Ben Simmons, he's the luckiest man in the world that he yeah. acts like a complete baby. I mean, I don't like Ben Simmons that much, but I will say he fits so well with the Nets. And I think Kyrie and Kevin Durant work really well together, and they were always the plan. Harden was, wasn't. And that's what I'm saying for the Nets. Yes, it seems like a blow that you lose Harden, but in the long run, I think Kyrie and Kevin Durant are, are enough. And if Simmons can come in and, and be that star and just be an absolute defensive monster, pass the ball, then they have the talent to destroy everyone. And, and it's just going to come down to can Kevin Durant be healthy? Can Kyrie Irving be healthy? And how much they get to play together? And I do think you're right. They're, they're the favorites. But it's just so hard to project that when you haven't seen it. And that's why I think that's why I lean towards the Bucks because I I've seen what they are. I know they can now you know play very well in the playoffs, and they're an interesting you know matchup for anyone who they play. Uh, I do lean towards the Heat over the Bulls just because we we don't ever really see teams. To me, the Bulls feel like the Bucks a couple of years ago. Like they got some really good pieces in now. And Zach Levine's the face, and I need to see them go through some playoffs before I really evaluate them. And I've seen the Heat, you know, as of two years ago, call them it was the bubble effect, whatever you want. But I still think, you know, they're a good playoff team, and that's why I would favor them over the Bulls. But you're right. At at the top end, talent-wise, I think, you know, you'd be foolish to say that they're going to beat the Nets. But I do think the continuity gives gives them a... a little bit of a one-up over over the Nets right now, and so that'll be interesting to see. Is if that is enough to overcome some of the talent differences in Brooklyn, if Brooklyn is not full strength, um, and and that's what it's really going to come down to. I think at the end of the day, is which team is able to put together enough healthy players with enough continuity. That's probably who's going to win the East. Yeah, and I think just to give a little picture of what we've been talking about, like the the market right now has the Nets and the Bucks basically even in terms of um, for trying to forecast. And after that, it has the Sixers just slightly ahead of the Heat and then a pretty big gap before the Bulls. So I think that that does kind of show like what, what you're talking about. Like, yeah, there's a gap between the Heat and the Bulls. Um, the star power is going to be definitely highly valued, but then um, the Nets potential might be slightly higher, but Milwaukee's proven it before. So you look at them as pretty close to even. What's interesting about the East, too, and and this is something that's hard to see big picture, but because the teams are as close as they are, the seeding is going to be massively important. Because let me tell you something. The Celtics have finally figured out how to play around Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. And they're moving up to standings. They've moved past Brooklyn. And with Kyrie not being able to play and Kevin Durant still hurt, I don't know if Brooklyn's going to necessarily have a good seed come playoff time. And so these teams like the Celtics, these teams like the Raptors might end up getting better seeds than them and it's going to force Brooklyn. Now, I don't think Brooklyn at full or I don't think either of those teams can beat Brooklyn at full strength. Don't get me wrong. But it may not matter because Brooklyn's going to have to play the Heat or the Bucks or the Bulls in the first round and that's going to be super interesting. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing is though like it might actually be better for Brooklyn to be the 7th because Yes, you're in the play-in, but then Kyrie Irving gets to play an extra game every series. If 
That's if true. that is requirements not like that's what makes everything so weird is like it might actually be best for Brooklyn to end up the five seed. And maybe then you get to play Cleveland, so your first round is not that hard. But then later on, you get to play four games with Kyrie and three games not. Because if you're a home team, that's it's it's flipped around. So that's the craziest thing. I think we've talked about that before. Is like that maybe maybe this ends up working out for them because it's going to take some time for these guys to get back healthy and adjusted. But that might actually be the amount of time you want to to wait on until you can creep back up into the six or the five seed and then see what happens. Yeah, and you know. I guess I'm looking at it more from a matchup perspective, but you're right. If the Nets get everybody they they want on the floor, it doesn't really matter, I guess, if you if you're the better team. So even though they might have to play like you know the Bucks, the Cavs, and the you know Heat all in one playoffs, I mean you have to play the best teams anyways. So that may actually be better if they do get Kyrie for an extra game. And I think you know obviously they'd rather have their full entire roster on the floor than not. So that's that's a very interesting dynamic there, and it'll, and it'll be it'll be interesting to see how teams like the Cavs, the Celtics, the and the Raptors push some of those upper echelon teams seed wise, because I don't think they can beat them in a, in a playoff series, but they can definitely maybe make the seeding interesting for the playoffs. Well, that's that's the most important thing for Brooklyn is your goal should be to not play Philly and Milwaukee. Like you should try to get on the side of the bracket where at least you're not playing both of them. And then, yeah. and also you're not playing one of them in the first round. Like that, those are really the only things I would be worried about. And at this point, the standings are so jumbled that I don't really know where that's going to be. You know, I don't know how you manipulate that at this point. So yeah, it's, it's going to come down to the wire. I think there may be some interesting like manipulation later on. If, you know, if Philadelphia is the three seed and, um, and Brooklyn is the, the six seed, you like, you're going to see them really probably trying to push to get out of that one way or another, even if that means going down to the seven. Yeah, it, we said this a lot during the NFL, but it's one of those things to where <laughs> I don't want to say something that's going to happen and then, you know, be an idiot. So it's it's just going to have to shake itself out because it's too the regular season doesn't mean enough to these teams to really understand what the seeding is going to be. It's obviously all about the playoffs. Yep. All, all right, let's move on to the West. We got something else I want to talk about here just um, – besides just the favorites because obviously everybody cares about the Lakers I mean it's unfortunate to me because I don't even think they're that good but everybody does they have LeBron James Anthony Davis Russell Westbrook I am so glad I said I can't remember when I said this it may have been a couple weeks ago maybe at the beginning of the year I didn't think the Lakers had a chance to win the championship I was like I don't I don't see it and they're proving me right because they look like they look worse than I mean. They look like the Kings. The situation there is is terrible. And um, we were talking about before we got on air. It's almost like they realize it, and they didn't do anything at the deadline. And we'll talk a little bit about that here in a minute. But is the is the situation in L.A. you know bleak enough to where they need to be concerned about if they ever are going to have a chance to win a championship with with the way they have the roster right now? Yeah, I. I think somebody who needs to be concerned is Rob Polinka because I, I mean, I don't know how he keeps his job after this. They were, they had done such a good job of building a team that works well with LeBron and a co-star because it was defense and it was shooting three-point shooting and the three-point shooting wasn't great, but the defense was good enough to where, you know, they were top two defense in the NBA. So, you know, guys like KCP, Caruso, those are the type of guy. And even Kuzma is a good defender. Those are the kind of guys you can surround LeBron with because you assume that when you have LeBron, the offense is probably going to be good enough by itself. 
And so now they don't have those guys anymore. And you're starting to fit. There's only so many veteran minimum guys you can have on a team before you start to really struggle to find guys that can perform every single night. And especially when Russ is just not meshing well with this team, like it, it's, it's just not working well. And it's, I do want to see, you know, Davis has just now gotten back and he's starting to play better. So I, I don't think this team's going to miss the playoffs. I don't think that we're looking at complete disaster, but from where they started, I guess it probably is a disaster because it's just, it's so funny. I mean, like if you look at what LeBron is doing, I mean, he's averaging 29 points a game, eight rebounds, seven assists, or sorry, eight assists, seven rebounds. And the man is like 39 or 38 years old or whatever. And he's, he's scoring more than he has in any season since the last in, from in the decade of the 2000s. He has not scored 29 a game since the decade of the 2000s. And yet, that is still not enough for this team because they are just so incompetent everywhere else offensively that he has had to take more of a load offensively and it's still not enough. And I think back to the year in 2018 with the Cavs when everybody looked at that roster and said, man, like he's having to drag this team and he still got them in the finals. And this is worse. Like this is a worse roster than what he was dealing with in 2018. So I just, it's, it's just gross incompetence by Rob Polenka and the fact that they didn't make any trades, I don't even think that means that much. They didn't have anything to offer. No one wanted THT. No one wanted Kendrick Nunn. They have one valuable first-round pick in 2027, but the only reason it's valuable is because of how poorly they've built their team that people think the Lakers are going to be horrible by that point. So, yeah, it's it's a shame. I mean, maybe they could have added Terrence Ross or something, but I really don't know if that makes a big enough difference with where this team's at right now. Yeah, and it's, it's shocking to me how quickly things have turned there. And obviously they knew LeBron – I mean, like, he can't play forever. So, I mean, they knew that it wasn't going to be necessarily this thing where they had a window for, for 10 years. But I think that's one reason they went and got Anthony Davis. But what really confirmed to me that this is a bad situation is that LeBron and AD are back now. And it, it didn't change anything. Like, they're still getting blown out. I mean, and... You know, Russell Westbrook is, you know, trying to comfort them on the sidelines. And he's like, man, I wish I w-. He pretty much is telling them, I wish I was good enough to be in the game, but I'm not. And um, it's just, it's a sad situation. And I honestly think the way LeBron was acting on the sidelines, it was him realizing this ain't going to work. I, I got, I might as well, I might go play with Bronny whenever he comes well, out. That's exactly what I was yeah. going to say. It's like two years till Bronny's coming in the yeah. league. And then, and then. That's that's what I'm saying. That's why the Thunder is saving all those draft picks. They're gonna trade up for Bronny. Bronny's coming to OKC. No, but seriously, like I, I do think like LeBron. I don't think is a guy that just straight up quits. But he is he is very cerebral. Like he he definitely sees the big picture. And I think of most years he knows whether his team is good. Like in in 2018 when he drug that team to the finals. And then scored, what was it? He had 51, 8 and 8 in that overtime loss when JR forgot the score or the time or whatever. After that, he knew it was like, yeah, that was, I mean, if, if, if we just gave up that game and we lost, that was, that was not, we have no chance. And I, you, I think you kind of see that again this year. Like they asked him in the press conference the other night after they lost to the Bucks, like, um, or can y'all get on the same level as Milwaukee? And he was just like, no, like, there's no way. Like, they, and I don't, I don't know, like, we we don't like when people say that, but we also don't we we don't like when people lie. Like I don't know what you want him to say there. There's no really good answer, but it's he's always very upfront about that stuff. Like he he says what he thinks, and and yeah, this is a tough situation for them. And 
I don't know. I mean, got that he's committed to them for a couple more years. So is Davis. So you've got some time, but the Westbrook contract just hamstrings you so like it just restricts you on what you can do. So I, it's really tough. It's it's yeah, it's tough in so many ways because you have LeBron AD, but like you said, you have to have a roster around them, and they have no young players really. I mean, no no young guys coming up who can who can really be anything more than role players. You know, Russell Westbrook is not very good. And there's just, it doesn't seem like there's anywhere to go. Like, there's no path forward to where they can get better. And so if they can't make it worth work with the current team, which it looks like they won't, then I, I don't see this ending well for LeBron James in, in an L.A. Laker uniform. I mean, maybe they, they piece something together next year or, or a couple years, but I seriously do think what this is going to trigger, and this is going to, LeBron is going to have to say that he's going to do this for this, for this to happen, but it's going to be really interesting. And I hope this comes to fruition. If LeBron says, yeah, I want to, I'm going to make it work to where my contract aligns, where I can go wherever I want when Bronny comes into the league. Well, he and has, then, huh? He has, he's a, he's a free agent. I mean, that, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm just saying like, is he going to say, like, I'm going to go play with Bronny? And yeah. I think he might. Like, I think he might say that. Then it's teams are going to suddenly be tanking, not for a draft pick that they can build their franchise around, but they're tanking for a guy they can pick so they can get his dad. Like, yeah. that has never happened ever. And that's crazy. crazy. I mean, LeBron's going to be 40 by then. But still, I mean, you get to be the team that says, yeah, we drafted Bronny and got, you know, LeBron with him. And so... Yeah, no, it's I, like that, it's the whole thing. Like you know, in the, when you're playing basketball as like a fifth grader, it's like, oh, we're a package deal. Like, yeah. Oh, you have to pick the two together. It's like that never actually happens, but it never happens because no one ever plays at a high level till they're forty. Like no one, yeah. there's never been a guy before where at forty years old they're like, oh, we actually are willing to use the number one pick just to get this guy on our team. Like that's yeah. because that just hasn't happened before. I think the most points anybody had ever scored in like a year eighteen before this was Kareem, and he scored like sixteen a game. Like LeBron's almost scoring thirty. Like it's just, it's unprecedented. It's creating really weird scenarios for both the, for all of the different things around the Lakers. Yeah, that's what's crazy. And I'm this hasn't gotten enough, which it's still a ways away, obviously. So it'll get more traction. But Bronny might be picked higher, not even for him, which is sad. It's like we want you, but but just to get to your dad. Like, um, and so yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he's not really that good, um. It, how much teams reach for him if LeBron comes with him. And, yeah. and that's what's going to be interesting. Anyway, we got a little – we'll have time to talk about that down the road. But I, I, one more thing I want to mention with the Lakers is you've already talked about, you know, Rob Polinka, But it was reported that they had a deal offered to them by the Rockets. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but they were willing to give up John Wall for Russell Westbrook. Not saying that they should have made that deal, but – do you think that the Lakers just had no intention of moving Westbrook at all? Like, I mean, like, what was the what was the thought process there? I I probably would have done the deal for Wall, honestly. Like, I've seen enough with this. This is I I would have at least Wall is maybe hurting you less when you're on the court. Like, it's I probably would have done the deal for Wall, but I get why they did it because especially like you know you said like well why did they do nothing? It's like well if you didn't like the Wall deal, there's no other big contract in the NBA that's big enough that for a team that would be willing to acquire Westbrook to where a deal works. Like his contract is so big. You know, that's why, that's why he was traded for Chris Paul when, 
the Thunder traded him away to the Rockets. That's why he was traded for John Wall already when he was traded to the Wizards. There's only so many guys in the league that can even be traded, and most of them are extremely valuable. You know, like LeBron on a $40 million deal is still underpaid because of the way the max salary works. Like those guys, no matter who you want to name, Jokic, Giannis, Durant, they're all underpaid because they're artificially capped on how much they can make for part, like for, for competitive balance. And so with that, you have the other guys that are at that same tier, but they're not good anymore. And so there's only so many guys you can trade it for. So I don't really know what you were supposed to do if you didn't like the wall deal. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it's one of those things where the Lakers actually realize we're not going to be one of these teams that just makes a deal to make a deal when it doesn't make sense. And I think they might as well have said, you know, Westbrook, yeah, he's he ain't great, but we'd rather not mess up the team and bring in a guy who's just going to not be the same thing. And, and so I don't mind them not going after the deal, but it is interesting that they did absolutely nothing. Um, and I really think it signals that this Lakers team is not really going very far. And, and maybe, I don't know, maybe they are trying to get a good draft pick. Who knows? But it'd be interesting to see, you know, how their season it finishes. All right, we'll, we'll do the same thing for the West now and actually talk about the good teams and the teams worth talking about. And it's a lot different in the West because I think we have a pretty clear hierarchy of teams. Obviously, there's still a lot of, of good teams in the West, but the Suns and the Warriors have separated themselves. Uh, and then you have the Memphis Grizzlies, who have me and you have both were both high on the Grizzlies, both high on John Morant. Record-wise, they're right there with the Suns and the Warriors. So out of those three teams, obviously you have Utah as well and, and Dallas and, and Denver, but those three teams are, are the top. Um, you know, who who are you projecting, you think, right now, if you had to pick to be the favorite? And, and are the Grizzlies for real? Do they have a chance? Yeah, I think, yeah, we, we should go back and play that audio from when, from the season preview when we were yeah. talking about the Grizzlies that age as well. But, yeah, to me, I, I trust Phoenix more than anybody else. Um, you know, we, we talked about Milwaukee. They've done it before. Phoenix has done it before. And they keep getting better, which is the weird thing. Like, they – they continue to win more and more and they started off a little slow this season. And then from that moment on, they, they've gone on an absolute tear. And I, I like the depth and the the stars that Phoenix has a little bit more than Golden State, just because Clay is, you know, Clay's back, he's contributing, but he's still not fully um, back to the level he was before. So definitely have to be patient with that. But um, I, I would tend to lean Phoenix right now. And I do think there's probably a gap after Phoenix and Golden State. Um, Memphis is a great young team. And I, I would kind of compare Memphis to Atlanta last year. Like I think they they have the ability to go on that type of run, but what it requires is a collapse from a, a great team. You know, Atlanta, they, they had a great run, but it required Ben Simmons refusing to dunk the ball into the hoop in game seven. Like it, it wasn't just their great performance that got them to the conference finals. So I think that's what you're looking at for Memphis is like a great season and Jaw taking a leap into superstardom and some of these other guys like Desmond Bain starting to become legitimately good players and, and valuable in this league. But I still don't see them as as high as the top two tiers. And then, man, the Jazz are probably the most depressing, successful team that you will ever find. Like, it's just, it's the same thing every year. The guys, it seems like Mitchell and Gobert are kind of tired of each other because Mitchell is like, you know, the real hooper and Gobert is the analytics nerd favorite favorite player. And so they just... Their styles contrast. They have no defensive help for Gobert, which I it frustrates me, the discourse around Gobert, because he is the best rim protector in the league, but they have no perimeter defense to help him 
So he gets put in these awful situations where if you were building a team around him, you would have, you would try to have better perimeter defenders so he can actually only do what he's good at. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, you're looking at teams it later on like Dallas, where, you know, we talked about Luca's playoff performance earlier. If he goes on a tear like that, maybe, but I don't think their roster is good enough regardless for them to make a deep run. And then um, there's the injury contingent teams we've talked about before with Denver and the Clippers where you're hoping guys come back. But yeah, I think, I think Phoenix and Golden State are clearly, um, have clearly separated themselves from the rest of the conference. And I would lean Phoenix currently. Yeah. And to me, this is a lot clearer, like we, like you just talked about, because the league and fans should want there to be a Suns Warriors conference finals because those two teams are just fun to watch, period. I mean, the Suns have become every bit as successful as the Warriors have. And they work, they play. We talked about roles, knowing your roles. There is not a team that epitomizes having good, solid roles than, than the Suns and the Warriors. Everybody knows their part. They play it to perfection. There's no egos on the team as far as too much of one. And I think you see that in their record. I mean, that's why they're 44 and 10 or 41 and 13 or whatever those two teams are. And, you know, they're, they're always going to have the best players on the floor most nights, but they're also going to have the best team on the floor. And that's what's, that's what's so cool to watch is when those blend together. Because unlike, I think you could say, the Heat and the Bulls, they have the talent to match up with, with most teams as well. Um, you're right, though. It's As much as I have loved what the Warriors have done this year, I do think we need to see them in the playoffs again. And we need to see what it, what, how they hold up to, you know, that taxing of a, of a schedule, playing seven games, playing six games, whatever it is, uh, with, with Clay back. And it's going to be a real test. And, and obviously they're getting older as well. And so I'm excited to see, you know, the, what the Warriors look like, because I think Phoenix is on a mission. I mean, they obviously, when you lose the, the, the finals, you want to get back and you want to give yourself another chance. Um, and so if it goes into the to playoffs with the with the Phoenix as the one seed, I think they have a pretty easy path. They destroy Utah every time they play them. They, they, they match up so well against Utah. And so I think that, um, you know, they should get by them. Memphis is the one interesting thing, I think, out of this because they play really well also as a team and John Moran has become a superstar. Can they make a little noise in the playoffs? And I just don't see, like you mentioned, the Warriors being the team that collapses to them. And so for this year, with the Nuggets being, you know, not as healthy and the Clippers not being that healthy, and we talked about the Lakers' problems, I think it's it's. I'm not going to guarantee it, obviously, like Charles Barkley, but I think it would be a, a a stretch to say anybody else except the Warrior or the Warriors and the Suns should should be in the conference finals. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. I think you're. It, it's really hard to make an argument for any of these other teams with. Um, when some of the other best options just don't have their guys, you know, with Paul George and Kawhi being hurt um, and then Jamal Murray being out and now Michael Porter Jr. as well in Denver. I mean, Jokic is playing. I, I think Jokic is probably the MVP right now. And that team is just not good enough around him. So it, you're, you, there's some other guys in this conference that usually um, you, you would have as um, potential teams to knock off. Because, um, you know, when you get into a series like that, a superstar can take a, take over a series, but a lot of those guys just don't have um, what's necessary around them or are not healthy themselves. So um, the field is definitely narrower in the West. Um, I think you're – I hope we do get to see them play in the conference finals because 
I think that would be a great back and forth series. And it, both teams play really, like you mentioned, great team basketball. So I think it, it would be a good product. The NBA is so volatile and, and even more so, obviously the NFL limits the variables with, in the sense of there's not as many teams, but there's only one game too, you know, in the playoffs, there's no series. So that gives us interesting outcomes, but the NBA is so predicated on who's healthy at the time of the playoffs, you know, how the rosters are looking then. And so we just really don't know what's going to happen until we get there. And so once again, we'll have to see as we get closer to time, but I think that's going to wrap it up tonight for our NBA discussion. As far as what we've seen, from the trade deadline, our favorites going forward. But I guess we don't really have like a game or anything to play on this episode. But I do want to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, the other side of the discussion in the NBA. And that is, you know, the draft side, the college side, and what to look forward to. We already talked a little bit about, you know, thinking ahead towards maybe picking Bronny in a couple years. But there's some players at the college level right now that are drawing a lot of discussion. Um especially who's going to go number one overall. So I thought we'd really quickly close and maybe I'll, I'll frame the question like this. There's three guys right now solely that have kind of separated themselves. I would say as the, as the top three in this draft class, and that's Jabari Smith from Auburn, uh, Paolo Bancaro from Duke and Chet Holmgren from um, Gonzaga. If you're a team right now, obviously it depends on fit. It depends on what you need. But which of these prospects has stood out to you the most, and in which way would you lean towards? Is if you had an open open book and like you could pick any of these guys, who's who's impressed you right now? Yeah, it's definitely early in the process, but I to me right now, I think I would take Chet number one overall, and then I, I'd probably take Jabari second, and then Paulo third. Um, I, I can give you a little reasoning for all three. I think Chet to me is not being looked at correctly as one of these great number one overall prospects because of the way he looks. And that's very hard to get past like this super skinny frame. But I think you have to, you, at some point, the production has to matter because the efficiency he's doing this uh, at a collegiate level is ridiculous. I mean, he's shooting 46% from three at, and he's a seven footer and inside the arc, he's shooting 75% on two point field goals, which is about as good as you can possibly shoot um, his true shooting percentage from a freshman is the second best of all time in college basketball history. Um, so even though his raw counting stats, like his, he's only averaging 15 points a game, that's nothing special. You know, nine rebounds, two assists. You wouldn't think of that as a standout player, but he's doing it as, on such an efficient basis. And at Gonzaga, you know, you have to fit into a system. We saw the same thing when Jalen Suggs was at Gonzaga. His counting stats are not going to be crazy good because they have other great players. You know, Drew Timmy is still – the guy they run a lot of their offense through because he's an elite player and he's been there for so long. So I don't think you can look at the counting stats and just say that he's not producing enough. Um, to me, he is a great all around player. You're looking at a guy that, you know, he's, his feet are not incredibly quick. You know, he's seven foot, not going to, not going to get around the court. Well, but he is a great rim protector. I mean, he's averaging three and a half blocks a game. So this is a guy that I think does have a real legitimate defensive role in the NBA as a rim protector on defense and then a guy on offense that can do basically everything because he's proven he can score around the rim. He can shoot the three point at a really high clip and he's a, he's a smart enough player and a good enough passer to where I think he can fill in the gaps between a lot of uh, different plays. You know, there's one, there's been a few plays this year where he's gotten the rebound and just taken it the full length of the court and gone down and scored. And those kind of plays are just, those are very rare for a guy for his size. So I, I'm very high on Chet. I do think, you know, there's a few concerns with the build. Like, there's going to be some times where he gets bullied um, in the paint. But 
But to me, I, I really like Chet, and I'll, I'll throw it back to you. So what, what are your thoughts on him overall? I think with him, like you mentioned, he's undervalued, and it's more because of the way he looks, but also the system he's in right now. Gonzaga has so many guys, and the way that they're constructed, they're not necessarily one of these teams that just gives the keys to the to the freshmen. You know, like when you go to Duke, you can be a freshman, and, and, and we're seeing this with Paolo Bencaro. You can be a freshman and you get the keys to the kingdom. Not so at Gonzaga, and especially because they have Andrew Nimhard, uh, you know, Julian Strother, and Drew Timmy there. So we're not even getting to see Chet Holmgren true potential because he's not the guy that Gonzaga necessarily runs their offense through. And so like you're saying, his efficiency numbers are insane, but we're not even getting to see his full potential, which I think is unfortunate. And also because he does play for Gonzaga, that also limits who he plays competition-wise and how much we see him. But his skill set is the best out of the three. And I say that because he, he seems to be able to do every phase of the game well. And I think you can find some holes in, in some of these others, or at least maybe not holes, but they don't even try to do some of the stuff Chet does. Mm-hmm. And so if he does fill out, I think that you're looking at a guy who could potentially be, you know, an Evan Mobley, but he's got guard-like skills. And so, I mean, I, I think we're looking at that type of player here. And I, I think I'd lean towards him too. I think I need to see what he does. I know this doesn't mean anything, but how he handles like NCAA tournament competition, because if he really shows out there, I think hands down, he's probably going to go number one overall. Yeah, because that's the one question is, you know, Gonzaga. Gonzaga guys always get this where it's, you know, they don't play anybody. So it's like, yeah, I think with him, you probably have to put more stock into the tournament than maybe some other guys, but it's got to be put in context with everything else just because he has one bad game doesn't doesn't mean he's not the number one guy. Right. Um, but yeah, going into and the next guy we're going to talk about here, Jabari Smith, a little bit. Um, most of you are probably more familiar with him um, to, that are listening to this podcast. Um, this is a guy to me that is a perfect player for the modern NBA. I, I don't know if this guy's going to become a superstar, but he has so many skills that translate well to the way the game is played now that he, I think he's really valuable to whatever team ends up picking him up because he's a guy that's 6'10", but he has, he's a guy that can elevate and shoot a jump shot from anywhere on the court. Um, his, he's got a mid-range game, which is kind of a lost art now. He's, he's worked on that throughout his career. And he's a guy that can shoot the three, but he, he's quick enough. You know, you know, Chet, you look at more as a guy that's probably going to guard fours and fives. I think he, Jabari has the potential to guard sc- dominant scoring wings at a, at a higher level if he continues to develop as a, as a defender, which is probably somewhere where he has an edge over Chet's perimeter defense. Um, I, I do think this is a guy that it, if he – I think what will limit him early is that I'm not sure he is able yet to run an offense through him. He seems like a guy that operates much more off the catch and shoot, one or two dribbles into a pull-up. So that's probably the biggest thing that I want to watch with him is how his handle develops, um, and if he can really turn into a guy that maybe is not your number one offensive option, but a guy you can still throw it to and say, go get me a bucket, because a lot of his um, game right now is much simpler, which as a college player is fine, but that to me is where I want to see him grow the most. Him and Bancaro, and I think I'm going to go ahead and talk about them together, are interesting because I think they're they're opposites of each other in the skill set. Mm-hmm. Smith is, like you mentioned, if you watch his games – his shooting is NBA level, like his release, his catch and shoot, his post up fadeaway. It's all NBA ready, but the dribbling and the playmaking, he shows really little to none. 
And with his athleticism and his size, that's what you want to see him be able to go to the rim, take guys, dunk on him, and then we'll, we'll worry about shooting later. And I think that that hurts Auburn sometimes because he should be getting more shots, but because the ball is not in his hands, he has to settle for those kind of catch and shoot plays and, and things like that. Or, or you know, they get it to him in the post and he makes a mid range. And I do think right, he fits the modern NBA great. It's just going to be interesting to see how he. Because because of his build as well, he's a little loose with the ball, a little lanky. And if he can get that down, then he'll be a really good player. Bancaro, on the other hand, is a point guard in a big man's body. He can, you know, get to the rim, he can handle the ball. If you if you watch some of his games, he can do it all. It's the catch and shoot game, and it's the, you know, the the kind of NBA, you know, body control post moves that he doesn't quite have yet. And so if they could somehow mesh their talents right now, I think you'd have yeah. you know, the number one player. But Holmgren, to me, is kind of the unicorn. Like, if he gets a body, then, then he's everything. And these guys have very specific skill sets that probably Holmgren doesn't even... Like, I don't think Holmgren could shoot as well as Jabari Smith or as the array of post moves as far as, like, fallaways, things like that. Bancaro has the ball handling, the explosiveness to get to the rim, to, to you know, take contact... But they don't quite have the full package, and this will be—that's what's going to be interesting for these teams—is do we think they can develop that? Yeah, and that's well—that's the crazy thing for me is you—you you kind of mentioned like the ability of Smith to shoot is that's why I like Holmgren so much is like maybe he doesn't take the diff, as diff, high difficulty of shots as Jabari, but like he is way more efficient than Jabari on at every single level, even from three. Holmgren shooting forty-six percent, Jabari shooting about forty now you definitely have to look at the shots they're taking. Like Jabari is moving a lot more into those. So it, it doesn't mean that he's Smith is not a better shooter, but Holmgren has been so efficient in that. Um, like you mentioned, and Bancaro, he's only shooting 33% from three. So that's something he's going to have to develop as his game um, continues to, to go develop into the NBA. Because to me right now, you know, one player Bancaro reminds me of a little bit is John Collins. Um, they're very similar builds. Um, ben Carroll probably has more of an ability to create than Collins did, but he's also, I think, worse defensively. And so that's one guy I would, I would compare Ben Carroll to. Um, but if the shot does develop, I think he becomes a much more valuable offensive player because I don't know if he's athletic enough to where without a shot, he can just get into the paint whenever he wants. Like, I do think that's a necessary part of his game to add because there's some guys, you know, when Westbrook or jaw or some of those guys, they're so athletic, like, even if you're not fearful of the three, like they're still going to get past you. And I don't know that Ben Caro um, has that ability. He's probably the weakest defensively out of the three, in my opinion, as well. Um, so that, those are a couple of reasons why I would probably have him below uh, Holmgren and Jabari. But if you're looking at ultimate ceiling, you might you might put Ben Caro over, over Jabari just because of um, I, he might be more likely to become an offensive hub. Um, later in his career, but I, I definitely, I think, would favor Jabari over Ben Caro currently. Yeah, and, and with these three players, what's what's um, exciting is that they have the athletic build that we haven't seen three prospects have in a while. Like all these players can be uber talented doing anything they want on the on the floor, and so I do think you know while none of them are necessarily surefire. LeBron James type Hall of Famers, Kevin Durant, they they still all could have the potential to be superstars in the league. And they all play on good teams in college, which is nice too, because though they're gonna have high seeds in the NCAA tournament, we could see them square off, which will create some interesting matchups there as well. And so, you know, me and Sully were talking, we're gonna have 
uh, a draft preview. Hopefully, whenever that comes around, it'll it'll be you know closer to the summertime. But hopefully, then we'll get a more in depth look at them and some of the other prospects we're seeing in college right now as well. So stay tuned for that. But you know, yeah, Sully, go ahead. Yeah, one a couple of things I wanted to add real quick because I think you made a good point there about um, the way the game is trending, where these big guys are becoming more and more skilled. Um, that's definitely something, you know, Evan Mobley is an example of that, where he completely unlocked the Cavs because he's allowed the Cavs to play two bigs, but Mobley is athletic enough to defend players on the wing and handle the ball some. So they, most teams can't play two bigs because they don't have a big that can do those kind of things. And so it becomes so valuable for them. And, you know, you're seeing this later down the road too, Victor Wenbanyama, who's a prospect in next year's class um, in 2023, he's seven foot two with a seven, nine wingspan, and he has perimeter skills. So it, this is only trending more. Um, in, in this way, like in the World Cup game against Team USA, he had 22 points, eight rebounds, and eight blocks. So it's, it's these type of guys where they have this link, but they've also started to develop these other skills. I think that's probably the next prototype in the NBA that you're looking at as, as a guy that – as a superstar that teams begin to try to replicate. And one other thing I wanted to add on Chet before we wrap up here is um, that in, since 2010, um, in box plus minus, which is a stat that tracks basically – how impactful you are when you're on the court versus off the court and the difference in the amount of points per hundred possessions, your team gets outscored by, or you outscore the other team by. So, you know, if you're, if you're a 10 box plus minus, that means in hundred possessions, when you're on the court versus not on the court, you're outscoring your team by their, the other team by 10 points. So the number one player since 2010 is Zion. He had, he was 20, 20, he had a 20 box plus minus. Number two is Anthony Davis in team point two. So you're looking at like historically great college players. Number three is Chet. And he's at 15. The names after that are Kyrie, Carl Anthony Towns, and Evan Mobley. So it's all number one pick superstars. Mobley's not the number one pick, but looking back, you know, there's teams that maybe would have taken him one. So it, these are all guys that have developed, like, are legitimate, great players in the NBA. And Chet's fitting right into that list. And that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be a superstar, but those are the kind of things you want to see from a guy is, like, these flashes of he's in great company. Yeah, you're right. And that's what's interesting is obviously – the NBA is moving in a direction where, you know, call it a bad thing, call it a good thing. The true center is is becoming extinct. And now you you definitely have some teams who still employ that strategy, but it's definitely better for you to have a, a complete skill set. And I think that's that's what we're going to see from more and more big guys, especially when you have, you know, people like Evan Mobley paving the way to show that a seven-footer can do it. And that's only going to make it more enticing for, for these big guys to be able to do that. So... You know, Smith, Ben Carroll, Holmgren, all in that same mold and all, I think, I'm not saying, you know, they can't bust, but every team, even as we get closer to draft time, is going to be happy, I think, with any of those three guys on their roster because they all seem like guys who have superstar potential. And so at the end of the day, uh, you know, you're not going to be disappointed if, you know, you know, Jabari Smith drops to you at three or, or Ben Carroll drops to you at three. Yeah, I think whoever's but, at three is just like, yeah, we'll take that guy. We're yeah. Done. Like, it's whoever yeah, falls. Best available talent, you know, sometimes is the best way to go for sure. And don't overthink it, especially with these three guys. All right, that's going to wrap us up for today's episode. Obviously, a ton of things to talk about in the NBA. But just to recap, you know, Sixers get James Harden. They get their guy and they're able to get rid of Simmons, but the Nets get him. So I think that definitely benefits their playoff run going forward. A lot of other trade deadline news as well. Uh, and we're, we're getting to the time of year to start thinking about the playoffs. We're almost to the All-Star game. And so... We need to start figuring out what the seeds are going to look like and which teams are ready for 
the playoffs. And so, you know, let me know who do you think are the favorites in the East? Who, who are the favorites in the West as we move closer to the time where we need to start thinking about the NBA Finals and the NBA NBA playoffs? So I thank you so much for joining me today. We'll, we'll be looking forward to getting back, talking about another topic real soon. But thank you so much for listening. This is the Sports Mill Podcast. Thank you.